How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Well, thank you, Tom. So sometimes things do persist from the past to the present and into the future. Sometimes things are great. Sometimes things can be fairly ominous. So with that in mind, Tom, could you introduce our guest for tonight? Yeah. Tonight, Dr. Joe, we have Michael Kaufman, who has worked for decades engaging men to support women's rights and positively transform the lives of men. He is the co-founder of the White Ribbon Campaign, the largest effort in the world of men working together to end violence against women. He volunteers as a senior fellow at Ramundo in Washington, D.C., and has worked on 50 countries, governments, NGOs, and educators. He advised the French government in 2019 as a member of its G7 Gender Equality Advisory Council. He's also the author of numerous fiction and nonfiction books and was awarded the Canadian Jewish Book Award for Fiction. His most recent nonfiction book is The Time Has Come. He's also written Why Men Must Join the Gender Equality Revolution and his first Jean Lu novel, The Last Exit. His books and articles have been translated into 14 languages. Born in Cleveland, Ohio, having lived in Durham, North Carolina, and now living in Toronto, Canada, he is married and has a daughter and a son. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show, Michael. Great to be with you both. It is an honor and a delight. So you had quite an illustrious career. How did, how did all of that start, Michael? I think like a lot of things in life, um, it wasn't exactly planned. Um, back in the, well, it got ages ago, back in the 80s, I was still in the academic world. Um, I became very interested in issues around uh, men and masculinities and support for women's rights. And as I pursued that more, both intellectually, but also, well, practically, as an organizer, as an advocate, as an activist, I just took over my life. Um, although all the time, I always still wanted to write fiction. And uh, finally, it wasn't until boy, around 2000 that uh, Penguin published my first novel. And uh, more recently, I've been able to return to that with, um, with this mystery series set in Washington, D.C. 10 years from now. That's great. So, And your latest book has just been released a few days ago? Yeah, it just came out. And uh, it's the second of the um, of this mystery series. And it, God, it's always fun when you get, um, let me pull it up here. You know, it's always fun when, you know, you do all this work and then you finally get to, you know, wave it at people and hold it in your hands and feels good. So let's hear about it. What's it called? Well, it's called The Last Resort. Um, mm -hmm. And um, as I said, it's set 10 years in the future. And I should say right off the bat, this is not one of these, you know, dystopian novels or movies where by the end you just want to kill yourself. Um, yes, there are some dystopian elements. I mean, just think right now, Washington, D.C., there's going to be dystopian elements. And you just fast forward a bit, 10 years. But one, one of the things, and it really fits the theme of your show, is that the book is really, I think, guided by a sense of hope, a sense of possibility that humans have to create our own futures. Um, and so it's a, it's a really fun book. 
Um, half of it is narrated by the synthetic, you know, computer implant in Detective Jen Liu's brain. I guess that is a dystopian element. But to make it, you know, both page turning and fun, uh, as a narrator, Chandler, the synthetic implant, um, is uh, this sort of wannabe tough guy who has a hard time pulling it off because he's he's only three years old. Anyway, the story focuses around issues around climate change. Um, there's a very strange death um, at the beginning. A woman is hit on by a ball on a golf course and dies. Of the seven or eight billion people on the planet, everyone is convinced it was an accident, except, of course, our detective, Jen Liu, who is convinced that something's going on. And the reason she's convinced that this is more than just an accident is that this is a, a prominent woman lawyer who's just won a Supreme Court case that is going to require the big oil and gas and coal companies to pay billions in climate change reparations. Hmm. And um, Jen decides that this is an attempt to, to stop that. And anyway, you know, the, the usual murder and mayhem ensue. Um, so it's both, you know, a book just like its predecessor, The Last Exit, that certainly deals with serious issues. But my goal as a fiction writer is not to explore issues, but, you know, to to have fun and to entertain. So that's, yeah, that's the last resort. It sounds great. How did you get the idea? <laughs> it, it all started, well, the first, the first book of the series started on a walk with a, a good friend um, and sometimes co-author in D.C., uh, I, I go to D.C. a lot. As you heard in the intro, I uh, volunteer as a senior fellow with the research center there. And uh, we were just talking and throwing ideas around. And who knows what one thing led to another. And then I went away and came up with this, this idea for, for a series. But let me tell you, Joe, the, the amazing thing that happened. In any good fiction, whether it's you know popular mass market fiction, if it's good or literary fiction, Characters can't be static. Characters have to develop. They develop, you know, we think of it as almost a life of their own. They evolve. They they deal just like we do with real life issues. So I certainly knew that my lead character, Detective Jen Liu, would evolve and change as a character, as she's confronted with life and love and crime um, over the course both of each book, but the whole series. But it never occurred to me in advance that this implant in her brain who narrates half the story would also become a real character. Mm -hmm. And as I sat, you know, writing the first volume, suddenly he started thinking things and doing things that I didn't expect. And that became what an element of the book that when I talk to readers and reviewers, they, you know, one of the things that they say right off the bat is I love Chandler. And, um, and, you know, I feel good about that because here's an element that could just be, you know, as I say, this dystopian element, you know, an implant in your brain that's running you almost. But, you know, I turn it into something that's, I, I think, imaginative and fun and actually deals with some of the realities and, and real questions, the existential questions um, that uh, Chandler gets into. So, you know, the amazing thing about writing fiction as opposed to nonfiction, nonfiction, you, you know, you've got it figured out, you know what you want to do, you research the heck out of it, and you just pull it all together. With fiction, yeah, you do certainly do some planning. But 
you know, the, 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 the best laid plans start evaporating because what happens for me anyway, as a writer, the more I get into the story, the more the, I, I, the, the, it's like walking through a dream for me, you know, it's not just when I'm writing, but it's when I'm taking a walk or, or running or bike riding. And just suddenly I hear the characters talking to each other and they're going places that, um, well, that I didn't expect. And so when you say, where did this all come from? You know, I think it came, ultimately it came from this combination that we bring to all of our lives, which is this combination of sort of conscious thought and, you know, just decision-making and figuring out what we do and how we do it and, 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 and bring, you know, our, our various, you know, abilities to that, but also comes very much from our unconscious. Um, you know, just what, what is just there and what we know about the world and each other that just comes into play. And that makes it really fun. It's so true. It's true. It's that combination of of thought and impulse. And, you know, we we do almost have something that drives us like that. You know, a, a, that emotional, irrational, sometimes limbic system where it's very often influencing decisions we make. And then we need to shift over to what it sounds like you're talking about, this ability to to think about what will happen next if we do this now. So is that at play also in some ways in the novel? You know, it it really is. Um, in, in a sense, you could say the detective, Jen Liu, is sort of represents the higher executive functions of the brain. And this computer implant is both impulsive, but also, you know, this is, and this is, you know, he, he's, he is gendered as, as, by as you can see by the name Chandler, but so I'll just refer to it as he as he. Um, but um, you know, he's also, you know, this totally, you know, zeros and ones uh creature. So things either are or they aren't. Um, and uh so in a way he's very literal, or he should be as a computer. But the thing is, and the interesting thing is, and what I think gives it its flavor and its fun is he's totally not. He's totally not a, a computer. And he's much more spontaneous. He's, he's he grapples with, you know, life's um, issues. He's both, um, uh, you know, a source of contact and communication and research for Jen, but also, you know, trying to caution her at times or, you know, egg her on at other times. So it's a fun relationship. It's a one reviewer called it the you know the most unusual buddy um, uh, mystery uh, buddy relationship. You know, there's a lot of in the history of of thrillers and mysteries and movies of the sort. You know, there's so many buddy relationships going back, you know, to Sherlock Holmes and Watson. And um, and so this is a, I guess you could say a different spin on that, isn't it? Um, but I like how, I like what you said, because in a way it sort of, I guess it does represent different parts of our own brains and our own thinking processes. Absolutely. And that's really something that has to be addressed because if we're talking about the big changes that we are facing as a species, uh, we need to be able to anticipate what could happen next if we keep doing what we're doing now. Well, it is so true, and it's you know it, it's sobering and and worse and and, and upsetting how how much you know we we know we are aware of the just this cascade of of 
I use the word again, existential, meaning just our very existence of ourselves and other species, whether it's the dramatic pace of climate change, uh, whether it's the just the destruction of species after species, uh, or whether it's the impact of of this, um, you know, this the, the world of computers and information. Um, and we see that acting out, uh, not only in terms of, of politics, um, but in terms of our work lives, in terms of our expectations, uh, in terms of the decisions we are making. Um, and uh, it is, it, it is, um, it is a scary moment, and um, you know, I you know, I I think that as as caring human beings, we 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 better start grappling with it. You know, we better start saying this is a scary moment. This isn't just another moment where we say, you know, we vote this way, we vote that way, and it gets better, it gets worse. Um, you know, we're 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 heading towards a a, a precipice, and. Um, and and certainly the last resort reflects that you know climate change is getting worse absolutely in ten years um, there is still increasing um, inequality you know that that point one percent is uh, ever more powerful it's not just ever richer but ever more powerful and so these are you know real issues although as I say you know I don't deal with them in the book as issues this isn't nonfiction. But it's just part of the world that the book inhabits, and um, that we as readers, you know, I think that we can both, you know, I think readers are smart, or you know, anyone picking up this book is going to be smart, and they're able to both just escape and have fun and turn pages, and also think hey, part of what may, is making this worthwhile is it's taking me into, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about things and and how things can change to create a better future. Mm. And, and I'm wondering, you, you've chosen a, a, a hero that is a woman. And how does that also connect with your other world of work? Yeah, it's, um, I want to do a number of things. I mean, my work, my, my, my paid work um, over the years uh, has been working with, as you heard in the intro, with uh, the United Nations and governments and companies and educators, NGOs, to engage men to support women's rights, to end violence against women, to support gender equality. And to do this, of course, in what we in the business call an intersectional framework, that is to understand that the world isn't just divided men and women, but we also carry multiple identities and relations to the worlds of power based on our sexual orientation, on the color of our skin, on our socioeconomic class, and so on. So any of the work I've been doing has been very much involved in women's rights. And so I thought two things off the bat. I thought it would be really fun to, you know, turn things around and um, and 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 write about, you know, have have a have a woman protagonist. Now, of course, there's incredible literature not being written in, in all fields, but including in the world of mysteries and thrillers by women writers with women as a central character. So I wasn't inventing anything here. Um, but I also want to, you know, to um, be able to just sort of delve into some of these issues around diversity and inclusion, not by dealing with them as issues, but just having them, as, as I said, as part of the texture of Jen Liu's world and the, and the book. I did at the same time take care I made a decision not to have her narrate the book, 
Um, as we know, there's a lot of issues around appropriation of voice, who speaks for whom. So I thought, okay, I'm going to divide it. There's, half the book is narrated by, you know, just a third person narrator telling the story, and the other half by this um, computer implant who's identified as a man. So I didn't want to sort of take Jen's voice away from her, whatever that might mean in the world of fiction. But at the same time, I just I wanted to um, I want to to join, you could say, as an ally, my sisters who my writing sisters in this case, um, in sort of creating for our imaginations and our entertainment um, a new batch of heroes, you could say. Mm. It's it's so interesting. There's a book that's going to be coming out in a year or two, which is basically a dictionary and encyclopedia of heroes. And sort of just mm. defining what it what it really wow. means. Scott Allison is is going to be putting that out. But it's so interesting. How how would you define a hero yourself? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you said that because it 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 drives me a bit crazy. Um, you know, suddenly, you know, anyone who is either well, in some countries drafted or anyone who signs up to join the army, because as we know, in terms of who joins the army. The majority have, don't have other economic opportunities. That's often the impetus, and um, so suddenly they're a hero. Um, someone is incredibly gifted at sports and can do things that other human beings, meaning you know us, the rest of us, simply cannot do. I mean, it's unbelievable what uh, what elite athletes can do with their bodies, and yet suddenly we we you know we name them as our heroes. And I think it really cheapens it. I think it really cheapens it when I, when I think of those, who, um, who, you know, who who do something, who do something that could cost them their life, or could cost them their um, physical or financial well-being. Someone who um, stands up against um, uh, against oppression. Uh, someone who. Um, you know, risk their job by speaking out, um, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, for me, those are my heroes, um, people who take a risk, in most cases, know they're taking a risk, and yet do it anyway. Um, and do it, ultimately, for the good of others. Um, and not just for, obviously, not just for self aggrandizement. Um, so it's that um, there's something sort of big and noble about it, um, which I think is what attracts us to that idea of heroes. Unfortunately, and this goes back to my my work on men and masculinity um, and some of the things I write about in The Time Has Come. Unfortunately, we've layered onto the, the notion of hero these, these essentially macho ideas, these ideas of manhood as being, you know, the hero is someone who's all powerful, in control, who dominates others, who controls his own emotions, who doesn't even have emotions, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, we create this, this impossible image. Um, and we know that as soon as we create that, and as soon as men strive to live within it, it brings a cost, not only to women, but I think to men ourselves. You know, I think when we look at the fact that men are more likely to take their lives by suicide than women, that men are more likely than women to be addicted to alcohol and other drugs and painkillers than women. If when we know that men are less likely to get help, go to a doctor, go to a therapist than women are, um, and die younger. All these things are the bizarre outcome of a society where men 
actually have more power than women. You know, this is not a thing where, oh, men are the real oppressed ones. We're not. Men as a whole, as a group, live in a world where we have disproportionate power and privilege just by this 50-50 more or less chance of birth. And yet, this is the incredible thing, this paradox of men's power that I write about, not, not in The Last Resort, but in my nonfiction, um, this paradox of, of men's power is that men actually pay a price for the ways that we've defined manhood. I remember talking to um, a veteran, a woman, who heard um, uh, who had been in Afghanistan, and you know heard about the work that I that I do, and she said um, she always used to get teased when she was in Afghanistan because she she cried a lot. She said I was really emotional, and the the male soldiers would always tease me as being weak and and this and that and you shouldn't be here. You just have to tough it out, you know, be, be a man type thing, even though you know, she's biologically a female, but you have to be a man. And it was interesting. She said, so I come back and in the past few years, a number of my comrades have committed suicide, have taken their life by suicide. Many others are dealing with serious PTSD issues. Um, and she said, recently, one of them called me and said to her, you know, um, I'll call her Sally. Sally, you were right. We were wrong. You were right to talk about the emotional hole that this was taking. We were in an awful, inhuman situation that is just no human, you know, it's just opposed to any human principle to, you know, to be worried, to either be killing or worried about being killed. And it took its toll as taking its toll. And you were right to talk about that. You were right to be able to cry and to speak to others. And I wish more of us had. And that's an interesting thing because, you know, maybe he would be the one who would be described as the hero. Um, and uh, maybe she didn't play the part of, look at me, I'm a hero. And yet, you know, she did something that, um, you know, maybe set her apart. Maybe she was the, the true hero. Maybe both of them were. I don't know. But you can see how how challenging it is. That, that's another thing. So, Mike, uh, I don't know if you know Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Dr. I've been trying to, like, put together, like, a dossier. Because Dr. Joe doesn't know. I, I always advertise Dr. Joe as the anti-Jordan Peterson. Yeah, yeah. I can tell. <laughs> yeah. And uh, thank goodness. Yeah. And one thing Jordan Peterson is just such a bitch about is men are the victims. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because it's true. Like men are more likely to kill themselves or attempt suicide. Yeah. And, and it, it's because of this mythology of the old, of the macho man yeah. and so many young men. When you're not, when you don't achieve those things, when you don't have, when you're not the Sigma male, I don't know if you've heard that term around. That's what the kids are saying you're beyond an alpha male you're a sigma yeah, male yeah. uh and when you don't achieve that status it's someone else's fault yeah it's yep. not that this is a ridiculous ideal to aspire to it's because yeah. the feminist movement is it's holding you back in some way or form but also don't blame it's the it's the weird hypocrisy of self-ownership but also it's everyone else's fault yep it really is and it's um and and it's and it's you know pretty both explicitly at times, but also implicitly um, misogynistic. I mean, it's blaming women, as you said, uh, feminism for the crises in men's lives. And we've got to turn that elsewhere. We've got to turn that um, to our expectations that we place on, on, on boys and then men. And we also have to look at the economy that has marginalized so many particularly working class men, you know, who don't have a college education. And we see what happens politically when those people are both marginalized 
and then they're left to be mobilized by hate mongers. Yeah, it's uh, it's like material conditions just like color society. Someone should write a book about that. But uh, anyways, <laughs> feminism, ugh, right? It's, and, it's and I got to jump in because I know Thomas was being sarcastic because you know for me feminism is such a gift to men. Um, it's 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 you know most I think most men want to live lives of equality and fairness with the women around us, whether in our personal lives or at work. Uh, in our communities. Uh, most men, I think, believe in human rights and, and fairness. And But also, I think feminism is a gift to men because I think it really believes in the men's capacity to be loving and caring and not caught up in the very things we were just talking about, these this sort of armor of manhood. And uh, so, yeah, no, Thomas is, um, you know, Thomas, your, 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 your comment there, of course, was being sarcastic because you know, I, both in my work, and I think for many men, maybe not using the term feminism, but certainly, you know, benefits and embraces these new possibilities that are, I think, bring so much to us all. Because uh, one thing that was fascinating is, I think it was Pew or something did a, a just a survey, like, so many people agreed with like, oh, yeah, like equality of agree with, the, but do you describe yourself as a feminist? Oh, no, no, no. Because I myself, like, for most of the aughts and then the then the twenty teens, I was like feminism. That means you hate men. Yeah. When mm -hmm. really it's just we're equal, and, and people are still being crybabies about that. It's like no, <laughs> I'm being I'm being attacked. It's like no. And another <laughs> thing I want to talk about is the just the idea of masculinity, because a, a thing you'll hear a lot is the idea that masculinity is under attack when the term that's thrown around the term du jour and maybe you'll stay around but toxic masculinity i i'd say that masculinity is absolutely not under attack and it's i think i'd say it's being resuscitated whereas toxic masculinity the idea that you have to eat five pounds of red meat or else you're gay or whatever the hell or you have to be able to fix a truck by yourself and it has to be it has to be a, a manual wait did you say a manual a manual <laughs> there's no woman you'll just a manual so what, what do you, yeah what do you think about that michael any thoughts about this yeah you know i i tend not to use the word toxic masculinity as a phrase but i certainly agree with the sentiment you're expressing tom um the, the reason i worry about it as a phrase and it, it, my friend actually my friend in dc who uh, gary barker who i was uh referring to earlier um he, you know, he says when for many men, when they hear the phrase toxic masculinity, you know, it's like watching a movie with subtitles. Um, the person says, you know, toxic masculinity, but the subtitle that many men see is, you know, you're a shit um, mm -hmm. and they feel under attack and that confusion comes in. But you're absolutely right, Tom, that, you know, the problem, you know, the, the problem isn't, you know, though, you know, being male, for example. Um, and the problem isn't with many of the attributes that that men have um, have cherished. The problem is this this narrow box, you know, or suit of armor, whatever image you want to use that we stuff men into. And the problem is we say to men, you it's not just we say to men, you will be strong because we should say to everyone, you know, you will be strong. The problem is when we say to boys, men, you will always be strong. You will never show weakness. You will never back down. You will never show pain. Um, and so what happens when we create a society in which both there's this expectation to, you know, to on men 
to you know be the provider to always be in charge to have all the answers um you know on and on to show no fear to feel no pain and suddenly feeling a lot of pain you feel a lot of pain because you're a human being you're feeling a lot of pain because we live in a really difficult time of, of for humanity we uh, men will be feeling pain um because some of the, the the forms of privilege and power that they just assumed they had um are whittled away and partly whittled away because suddenly you know we've had this 8000 year long affirmative action program for men it's called patriarchy and mm. suddenly men now have to compete for jobs with you know with women um so you know it's it's not women's fault it's just about fairness but at the same time we have an economy that's concentrated power and wealth in the hands of just you know a smaller and smaller and smaller group of people and so for so many men um who um relied on 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 manual labor on working class jobs um who don't have a college education uh, a lot of them are increasingly marginalized economically socially and they're hurting and the problem is not only that they're hurting but that they that hurt because they're not able to deal with it as you know and 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 get help and talk and be just turn to a buddy and say could you give me a hug what happens is what do they do well they might turn to alcohol they might turn to drugs or they might turn to hate and this is why we saw we've seen and it's just exploding uh in politics not only in the US but we're seeing it in right now in 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 Brazil and certainly in Russia um we're seeing this explosion and you know we use use the term right wing but it's it's more than that because it's not a coherent conservative ideology it's the mobilization of hate of anger um and irrationality um and just sort of labeling someone else as the enemy whether it's women whether it's lgbtq people whether it's people of color whether it's people from another country um people who disagree with you people who don't have your same religion whatever it is it's not just that oh you and i have differences it's you're you know you're right and that person is not only wrong but they're evil and so this mobilization of hate is taking you know the 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 angst and and hurt and pain in the lives of so many men and 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 labeling it as you said tom you know using easy targets whether it's you know feminism or you know uh trying to you know or or uh, different minorities and and so forth and that's a scary scary thing it is scary and it, i think it it comes down to this perception of do i still have value hmm. if i am not valued then i will activate my limbic fight flight freeze survival response yeah and you know people who listen to the dr joe show know this but value is so important because millions of years ago we weren't the biggest animal the fastest or the strongest we were isolated mammals scurrying around hoping not to be lunch and then we formed social groups and our survival potential increased so dramatically we're everywhere but to access the protection of the group you have to contribute to the group you have to have value so i i could not agree more this perception that somehow because there's a shift in our culture one group loses their value yeah. that's the part yeah. that we need to reframe zero because sum it's not that at all we you, yeah. you, we're not losing value at all one of the things i like to say is at at every and any moment you can remind someone of their value and whenever you remind someone of their value you increase your own value 
because yeah. people want to be yeah. around you. They want to be around someone who reminds them of their value because then everybody feels safer. So it, it is a huge social dilemma that we are in now. But if we can step back and look again at what is really going on without that limbic response, but the prefrontal cortex, the ability to anticipate the future, if we keep doing what we're doing now with the anger and the hate, where do you think we will end up? We know it's not going to be good. So the only thing that we can really do is just say, okay, that's an I am. So for whatever reason, the best this person can do is be angry, feel hate, feel dismissed. But I want to understand it. I am not going to do the same thing to them because that's what they're doing to me. I'm just not going to do it. It's just saying, what, what do you think about this idea that that somehow if if we can just remind each other, it's okay. We can have a shift in our role. It doesn't mean you're less valuable. Does that make any sense? And how does that, how can we apply that in this global world that, that we're living in? It, it makes a lot of sense. One of the things that that those of us who have worked over the decades to engage men to support women's rights and to transform our ideas of manhood is that we have discovered that taking positive approaches is the way to connect with people. If we just say to men, don't do this, don't do that, don't be sexist, don't be, it's, it, it, you know, what we do is they just, you know, as, as you said, they just, it just stimulates this flight or fight, flight, fight or flight response, flight or fight response. And, um, uh, and, and as soon as we do that, what we know is that people's capacity to learn is, is, is short circuited. Um, we're, and I know you talk about this a lot, that we're, we're not producing the hormones that allow us to learn to integrate new ideas. And so it's just, it's just counterproductive. If I just, and I remember once I was doing a workshop for police officers and I demonstrated, I want to demonstrate this. So I, you know, I, and so I went up to one of them as I was talking and I just about shoved my finger right, you know, in his face without thinking this guy is trained to react to people doing this. Anyway, it was fine, but you could feel the whole room just, you know, they were ready to jump because um, I triggered him and I did it on, I wasn't expecting quite a response, but I, I, what I was trying to show is that we have to, we have to open up, not close down. And so often, you know, a, a lot of uh, what I've done over the years is, you know, I'm invited to give talks at universities, in companies, and communities, and you know, there's often someone who comes with, you know, a hostile question, you know, someone who's a so-called men's rights advocate who blames women on their problems. Um, and so he, you know, he starts talking and he starts saying, you know, men are the real victims and, and on and on. And, um, and at that point, I realize, you know, my job isn't to out talk him. It's, it's not to put him down because he's got friends in the room. He's got people who trust him before they'll trust me. And so my job is to connect, if not with him, because sometimes that's not possible, but at least to connect with those people who listen to him. So I'll start by by figuring out the one or two things in what he said that I can agree with. Mm. And so I'll say, you know, you're right. Men certainly are paying a price for the ways we've set things up. And, you know, he'll look at me like, you just agreed with me? And then I'll say, but, you know, and then I'll just try to introduce ideas. But, you know, where 
Um, but have you thought about, you know, where that comes from? You know, should we be blaming, you know, women or LGBTQ people or, you know, and anyway, I introduce the ideas, but not just as I'm here to take you on and show who's tougher, but how we can actually connect, how we can find some common ground. And I think in that case, the common ground might be caring about men, caring about boys, caring about our future. Um, so and so that conversation you know, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be a positive conversation. It's got to have love as its basis. And, you know, you're absolutely right, Joe, that if we just, you know, if we just mirror to others, um, hatred and anger, and I'm not saying, you know, people don't have the right to be angry. Of course, you know, there's a lot of things that a lot of people have the right to be angry about. Absolutely. The question is what we do with that anger. That's exactly right. As I was what I, there is nothing wrong with anger. It's what you do with it that matters. Absolutely. Some of the most important social changes have come because of anger. Anger is an emotion designed to change things. So one of the things that we can do is whenever you feel angry, the first thing you can do is wonder, what do I want to see different? <laughs> what do I want to see different? And then you can step back and look again. The work that, that you're doing, Michael, you know, the it, it's... It's so influential. What's it like for you to to have that well, almost a burden and that responsibility of being so influential? You know, it's um, it's interesting you say that. There there have been times over the years when um, certainly in the '90s and the the knots when I, I just you know I wanted to. Stop. I, I, you know, was doing a lot of travel um, internationally, and it was some of it was so fantastic, and yet it was exhausting. I wanted to be writing more, writing my fiction, and I, I felt a real responsibility because back then there weren't many men who were working to, um, uh, you know, as allies with women. The good thing is that's totally changed. Um, mm. The good thing is that there are now so many men out there uh, who are working as allies, and. Um, for me, that's a really exciting change, and it's really gratifying. Um, you know, part of what has sustained me over the years in this work is, and when I say this work, not my fiction writing, um, but uh, the work to engage men and boys, what has really sustained me is the, the stories I hear from, certainly from women who are the leaders of this work, who are, you know, against incredible odds. You know, the women I've met, um, around the world, uh, uh, you know, in countries where they're up against so much. Uh, it just astounds me, just the strength, the courage, the heroism, I use that word heroism, of so many women um, that just continues to inspire me. And, um, but as well, increasingly, the number of men who are, you know, reevaluating their life, their expectations, their assumptions, who are, you know, sort of remaking who they are whether it's as fathers, um, as workmates, as partners, uh, as lovers, um, who are saying, you know, you know, as you said a second ago, Joe, not just in response to anger, but in response to hurt and 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 uh, sadness, you know, what do I want to do? What do I want to change? What do I want to be? And and so for me, that is um, it's incredible to see that. I mean, it's incredible to see see the strength of, of, of people and, and to hear, to see the resiliency. And, um, and you know, I'm grateful that I've been able to play a, a you know, a small role in, 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 in inaugurating that, this discussion back 
well, back in the 80s and 90s, along with a pretty small handful of men who were, you know, doing similar work. Um, but thank goodness that's now spread. And um, uh, I think there's a lot of men out there um, of all sexual orientations and gender identities who know that they are no longer alone in wanting something different and in saying, I'm not going to fit into that uh, that man box. Um, we can do it differently and better. You know, with that in mind, we're coming towards the end of the show, but the I am approach has two truths. Because the four domains interconnect, the home domain, the social domain, the biological and the IC domain, how I see myself, how I think other people see me, because they interconnect, a small change in any one domain can have a big effect. So, Michael, given the topic we're talking about today, what small change can you recommend to our listeners? You know, I think we were, we, all, we were talking about two things. So let me mention two things. We were certainly talking about the changing world of men. And uh, we were certainly talking about, in relation to my fiction, the world of climate change. So I think, you know, what I would say, and particularly to men, um, those who identify as men, is to step back for a second and listen to the voices of women. Um, doesn't mean you have to agree with everything you hear. It doesn't mean that women have, you know, all the truth in the world. But it means that women's voices, because women's voices have been suppressed, if we want to understand the reality of half of humanity, and if we want to try to think about what it means for us in terms of change and responsibilities and love, um, I think the the one you know it's the big thing, but the one small thing we just need to to always be doing, uh, and starting with is listening to the voices of women, um, not no not having all the answers, um, and 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 just just listening and taking it in, and then trying to respond not defensively, not to say oh I'm not like that or I don't do that, just take it in, and breathe, you know. And just and to, to think about what you're hearing. So that's one, you know, seemingly small thing, just better listening. And I think that's not only, you know, I refer to it in relation to men in relation to women, but I think that it's also true in relation to any group that's had relative social privilege and power. So if I want to understand the realities of racism and racial injustice, I've got to listen. I've got to listen to those who have experienced it. Um, as a straight guy, I've got to listen if I want to understand the realities of uh, LGBTQ uh, uh, pe people got to just do some good listening. So that's the first thing in relation to those those changes. Do some listening in relation to the climate change, which is this theme of the last resort. Um, it's it 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 it's different and it's harder. You know, there's all those little things that we say to people. You know, turn off your lights and use less gas and ride your bike and walk. And there's all those little things, but we're up against a status quo that you know, is just blithely going towards the precipice. And there's so many massive economic interests that have political backing that are just going to keep, you know, pumping uh, uh, hydrocarbons into the atmosphere as long as they can keep making money from it. So, you know, I think one little thing that we need to do around that is, is find our voices. And that voice may be talking to our kids, it may be speaking out in our community, it might be in how we vote. Um, uh, it might be in the letters we write. Uh, it might be in the consuming choices we make. But it's really finding our voice and saying, okay, yes, we're up against a whole economic system. We're up against the biggest, most powerful 
corporations and individuals in the world. And yet we as individuals can make a difference. Um, and if we don't, I, I can say nothing's going to happen. And so we have to take those little steps, finding like-minded people in our community. Maybe that's the big action saying, okay, wherever I, whatever my community might be, it might be, you know, my, my, my block, my hometown, it might be my school, it might be my, my office or, or factory, whatever my community is, my religious community, I can, I can play a role in, in saying to others, this, you know, our, the lives of our children depend on this. So finding our voice in our community to say, to speak out, to inspire others, to help others believe that a different future is possible. Yeah. And, and to recognize that when you find your voice and speak, there will be people who will hear you. That's so important. Now, with that in mind, let's talk about the second truth of the I am. Um, the I am is saying, you know, we're always doing the best we can, but everyone is interested not just in what other people think or feel, but what we really want to know is what are you thinking or feeling about me? And that has an effect on our biological domain because, you know, it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected and you are part of someone's home or social domain. So what this means is you control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Michael Kaufman, author, what type of influence do you want to be? Wow. Well... You know, it's it's an amazing question because often I think about that in terms of what I do out there in the world. But I think one of the things that is moving to me so much now, I have two grandchildren and, um, you know, I want them to, I don't want them to, you know, I think in different ways, I want to be a bit of a mirror to them, you know, hold up to them the possibilities that come with, with love, with caring, with speaking out, with hard work, all those things. But, you know, not to, not to, not to guide them or controlling, control them in any way, but um, to be one of their models of, of love. That's an influence. That is a beautiful influence. If we can all be that influence, we will have a better world. Michael, thank you so much for being thank you so much. tonight on the Dr. Joe Show. And Tom, thanks again for, for all that you do as well. You know, you have an influence on a lot of people too. I try. Yeah, and you succeed. Folks, we'll see you next week on the Dr. Joe Show. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye now. Stretch the kindness, version madness. Is it sadness or just a show?